The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host... Grace Gawler. Welcome to today's Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm Grace Gawler, your host, and today with a very exciting guest for you and a very distinguished guest as well. The show is brought to you by the Grace Gawler Institute for Integrated Cancer Solutions and we're located on the Gold Coast in Australia and we have a worldwide outreach. One of the wonderful things of doing this show is to be able to present to you some of the more unusual research and uh, also talk to the researchers who have pioneered various techniques. And today our guest is one such lady, Professor Veronica James. She's worked on breast cancer since the 80s and developed fibre diffraction diagnosis, a method to detect cancer using x-rays of nail clipping skin or hair. She's a physicist by training. Her research has also embraced other forms of cancer and we'll be talking about that with the interview in a moment. The method of diagnosis is quite revolutionary. It has been greeted with some scepticism, of course, by scientists. It is a paradigm shift to be able to accept that looking at hair, skin and nail clippings could possibly lead to a more accurate diagnosis of a precancerous or cancerous condition. Professor James maintains that her results can be duplicated if the correct procedures are followed. Basically what she does is take a sample of skin, nail or hair and shines an x-ray beam through it. Upon examination of the x-ray, one can then observe rings, which she'll talk about, which in their various positions indicate if the patient is developing a particular type of cancer. An absence of these rings indicates the patient is healthy. Veronica claims that cancer can be detected very early using her method. So you're in for a very uh, interesting and exciting interview, folks. Welcome to the show, Professor Veronica James. Um, Veronica, um, would you like to tell us about your background? It's, it's a very interesting background and we can then lead into the sort of work that you've been uh, doing uh, in the past. You're now retired, I believe. Oh, I have been kind of kind of retired. Kind of retired, okay. Uh, 65 was the age you had to retire from the University of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. But since then I've been a visiting person at 
Australian National University in Canberra. Okay, so can we go back and where did your career in science start? Oh, uh, it, it didn't start as everyone else's did when we finished the senior here in Queensland. I did an arts degree majoring in English and classics, but I also did some maths. And then at the end of my degree, I was offered a senior maths mistress position at Ipswich Grammar because I was one of the few women doing maths at that stage. So I started there and I taught 36 lessons a week from the sub-junior up to the senior. Well, I had a bad back. I fell off a roof as a child and so the doctors ordered me to have a year off to lie on a bed of boards they said but I took myself overseas because I felt that I'd be so poor over there that it could work and I'd use perms and comms to win a competition in the newspaper and so I had enough money to travel. Mm -hmm. When I got back to the grammar the next year they told me that now I would have to teach physics as well and I said physics I haven't done physics since the leaving myself, so how can I teach that level? And they said, but you topped the state when you did it, so you must know something. So I, suddenly I was teaching physics, and so I thought I should do some more physics. And um, I uh, started a degree at the night time, uh, and I finished it. Mm -hmm. At that stage, I was offered a position at the University of New South Wales, and I went on to do a PhD. So I finished it in two and a half years, which was verbatim. You couldn't finish any PhD in two and a half years. You had to spend at least three years. So I had to spend six months doing something, and so I started my research. Mm -hmm. So I, my research was in crystallography, which is really the basis of diffraction. So I started off in this area. Okay. So you've uh, done some fascinating research, which is called fibre diffraction diagnosis. What led you into that? And with uh, dealing with cancer patients also, what was your interest in cancer before you, you got to that point? Actually, I started work... Um, looking at cancer drugs, looking at how they worked. And I was up at the Prince of Wales Hospital and the pathologist up there said, if you want to do something worthwhile with your life, you'd stop all this stuff with the drugs and you'd find out what's actually going on. He then, I said, well, I don't know what's going on. He said, well, sit up there at that, uh, tele that um, microscope and look at what's going on. And he showed me how he, from his pathology slides, could see this big change in any breast that had breast cancer, which could precede the breast cancer. Well, so he said, I said, well, how do you know it comes before or after, if it's always there in the middle of it? And he said, I don't, but I think it does. So he called me up another day, said, come up here straight away. And I went up and he said, look here the first three cells of a cancer and look at all this changed allostotic area around it. 
it comes after. So if you can find out the structure of that allostotic stuff, then you could perhaps help and find the breast cancers. I then had to look at ducts. If you've ever tried to dissect a duct out of a, a cold kind of pathology sample, all the fat sets and the ducts set into the fat, it was hopeless. But with the help of some very inventive doctors, they actually put some blue dye in and that went along the duct so we could trace the duct and catch it from one end to the other. And so I did the first work on the changes in the breast and came up with, well, as you know, with the uh, fact that this happens straight away, that this changes like fetal tissue in the, in the uh, breast. Mm. So where to from there? Once you kind of had this awareness, um, how did that move on to your other work, which was with tissue, with skin, and then with, with nails hair, to use and hair as, as a diagnostic tool. Do I go through the whole story? Oh, I think it's really interesting. And I know you've talked about it with me before, but I think our listeners would be fascinated. Well, I gave a talk at Christie's Hospital and pointed out that this tissue right against the tumour was fetal tissue. I had pictures of fetal tissue I was just publishing. And they were fascinated so they asked me would I look at some samples of skin and yes I did and I could pick up the fetal change in the skin of the people who had breast cancer. I was really excited and went off asking them to give me a whole lot of samples to look at at the synchrotron in Japan. Well unfortunately they gave them to someone else who published all that stuff that I'd done for them and um, I had no samples to go to Japan so I asked him would he give me hair samples not because I thought they'd change but because I knew I'd worked with hair before and I'd get good pictures and I wouldn't lose face in Japan it was then we discovered a change in hair and although we thought it was a something wrong with the machine we pulled it apart several times and couldn't find anything. We then found that only, only eight had these rings in the hair samples and all of those eight proved to be breast cancer people. And just at this time, can you describe to our listeners what these rings actually look like and how you get these pictures of the hair samples or the skin samples or the nail samples? <laughs> yes, well... <laughs> Um, the, um, I will be able to put some of these on yes. the blog, folks, yes, so uh, you just can. to give you some Sorry. idea of what uh, uh, this actually this, looks like. This, is, this left-hand side is the picture of a normal hair. No rings, you can see. The picture on the right-hand side has the breast cancer ring added, superimposed on the other pattern. It doesn't alter it in any other way except to add a ring, a specific ring. Over here, this is a nail. Down below is a normal nail, no rings. But up the top, again, the breast cancer ring. 
And in taking these samples, uh, you've taken the hair or the nails from um, breast cancer patients, say, just, just for well, now. I haven't taken them, but somebody the doctor has. took them. Yep. Uh, actually, the hair was done with pubic hair mm-hmm. because I felt that normal hair, you can't brush and comb and do everything without wrecking it, really. So I asked for five pubic hairs. doesn't matter how long they are because we only need two millimetres. But you need it a bit longer than that because you've got to tie it into this sample holder. Right. And um, you must make sure it's not twisted, not uh, kind of pulled too hard, not stretched in any way. And uh, over here, the fingernails, you cut a tiny cutting of a fingernails if you're cutting your fingernails, and then you cut between two of the ridges and that tiny little bit has to be mounted on the end of a pin. Mm-hmm. Then you just put that in the beam and get a pattern. Extraordinary. So it's a, it's a signature, really, isn't it? I suppose oh, it's yes. the best. It's a signature of the evidence of cancer. And this method that you worked with um, is obviously a fantastic method of early diagnosis. Well, it is for breast cancer. Mm. I mean, it was the method used for DNA uh, by... Well, who shall we say did it? But uh, <laughs> Rosalind Franklin, and uh, the—I um, mean, it's—it's it's a very, very powerful thing because it can only see that ring if the stuff that's causing it is in there. Mm. I still don't know what's in there. I'm trying to find out. You only know that it's a pattern and it's a signature and it's how a, to read it. Well, it's—it's it's a, a ring of a certain diameter, and it's—it's it's kind of. It's, you don't really have to measure it each time because it's kind of just coming up over the top of that order there, the tenth order. So after you were um, you went to Japan, uh, what happened then? How did this work actually evolve? Well, we we published the paper. I uh, put everyone on the paper who'd done anything with it, and um, it was published in Nature. Mm-hmm. And what was that paper titled? Do you, uh... um, I think it's breast cancer. I forget actually. <laughs> Long uh, time back. <laughs> uh, diagnosis for breast cancer using a single hair. I think, or the potential of a single hair of the use of a single hair to diagnose okay. breast cancer. Okay, I'll certainly look that up and see. Several if can... different. Well, it's in that list in my order in my publication list. Great, okay. Which 1999, the 4th of January, 4th of March. That's quite an honour to be published in Nature. Well, yes, it was, but I mean, at that stage, it was absolutely the first of anything like this. I've tried to publish others in there since, but I haven't been told no, well, no, because there was a, everyone, uh, every group of scientists raced down to the nearest synchrotron, stuck hair into the beam. None of them got a picture. They didn't even get a picture of hair, let alone anything else. <laughs> and they all came back, we can't do it, we can't do it. So nature felt betrayed in a way that I could do it and no one else could do it. The German people actually wrote to me and said, um, if we gave you the hair we use, could you work on it? And I said, yes, I'll work on it. And I sent them, I actually did it in Japan. I flew to Heidelberg. I sat there and read out all the things. And at the end, this medico looked down and he said, 
I don't know. I said, what, did I get them all wrong? No, you said you got them all right. Why couldn't we? <laughs> so I then went to Leoben and told them why their machine wasn't good enough. Okay, so we'll take a break now in navigating the cancer maze. We'll be back shortly to continue this really interesting story with Professor Veronica James. Don't go away. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Scholar Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollarinstitute.com or email institute at gracegollar.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll free from North America at 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze, today speaking with Professor Veronica James, and we're talking about fiber diffraction diagnosis, which is a very interesting tool can you tell us about the use of this tool in breast cancer specifically, Veronica? Well, in breast cancer, we get these rings when, in fact, there's breast cancer in the body. And we see it two years before mammograms. I mean, I had a lady who sent a sample for two years in a row and was marked false positive. Third year, she had breast cancer and died from it because it was so advanced and they finally picked it up with mammography. 
and therefore we can see this and working with mice we found out we can see it from the moment the breast cancer starts it also disappears as the breast cancer disappears so it's a really not only is it able to diagnose it at the beginning but it can also confirm that the treatment was satisfactory mm. and that would solve 15 years of worry for most women that's fairly remarkable. You were telling me about uh, mice that had had breast cancer transplanted mm. onto their backs. Could you share that piece of information with our listeners, how you looked at the mouse whiskers to actually um, ascertain what was going on for them in terms of the cancer and its development? Well, I didn't... I, I couldn't bear the thought of putting a breast cancer on the back of a poor little mouse. But some people in Perth did put them on for me and they then waited and they took whiskers from the mice before they put them on and then after the cancer the blood started to flow through the cancer was now part of the body mm -hmm. they took more whiskers and they sent me all these whiskers you can imagine the length of a whisker of a mouse and I had to <laughs> kind of stand it on its end and work down from the top and stand up from the tip and work up from the bottom. And I was able to determine just how far along this whisker was this breast cancer change. We then told them it was 0.2 of a millimetre actually of this mouse whisker that had this change. And I asked them how far it grew in that eight weeks. Well, they couldn't measure it. They tried everything. Finally, they shaved them off, and then they could measure what grew uh -huh. in eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And we were spot on, correct, with our diagnosis when this breast cancer had appeared. So what you're um, interpreting here is the point of an real angiogenesis in the in the tumour, you could actually identify that, that point, mm. which is perhaps the most significant point in the tumour development that you could possibly well, we identify. Well, how long it's been there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What happened with that research? Where did, it, uh, where did it go? Was it published? Yes, it was all published, but unfortunately a group of, uh, I don't know what you call them, uh, people actually asked us, could they take this over and use it and I thought it was the most wonderful thing I could offer for women so I said yes but I must do the science because I know how to do it and so many other people have tried and, and failed so because of this I'm, I'm insisting that I have the, be in charge of the science oh they wrote that into the contract but the moment I signed the contract they forgot that clause and put on a technician who'd never done the work. So you have a, a special expertise and a special technique in, in doing this, which is probably fairly unique in the world? Uh, so a few other people have actually worked on hair, and, well, they can do it, but hair is not an easy uh, tool to work with. No. You can imagine one hair, and you mustn't it too hard you mustn't run a tweezer along it you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that if you do 
you don't get a picture at all or you get a very poor one. Mm. And all the weird changes that you get superimposed on where the breast cancer ring is. So virtually it wipes the experiment out. Right. But I've taught it to 35 other people, so it is possible for other people to do it. Moving on to other types of cancer, um, what have you been able to find out in terms of, say, prostate cancer, bowel cancer? That is it a similar pattern that you've been seeing, and does the same principle apply? Uh, well, using hair. Using hair. I could find colon cancer, which is a ring slightly bigger than the ring for breast cancer. There's a paper with that in it. That picture. Okay, we'll quote that on the blog afterwards, folks, because yes. I'm sure everyone is going to really want to have a look at this and mm. discover more. Uh, also, oh, there we are. Sorry. Um, there's colon cancer. Okay, the, so I'm looking the, at this right this, now, folks. This is breast cancer, and this one, which you see, is slightly bigger. Mm-hmm and slightly bigger at this end is colon cancer. And so it get a ring, but they're slightly different. Right. This is bowel cancer down here, which has got a lot of different rings in. Oh, and how much work did you, did you do? You've done it on breast, I know, but how much work did you actually do with, um, with colon cancer? Uh, not much. I did one set of tests. Mm -hmm. But in colon cancer... They also gave me pieces of the colon, and uh, I was able, to, a bit right up near the tumour and a bit right down where they'd cut it off, mm -hmm. and I was able to demonstrate that really they hadn't taken enough because the stuff where they'd cut it off was still bad. It still had the change. Two years later, they would get a colon cancer in the same spot. Right. Uh, that was what was happening at the time. More than 50% of people had it again in the second, second one in the same spot and died from it because they weren't expecting it. And prostate cancer? Prostate cancer doesn't show up in hair. Uh, I tried a lot of samples. I couldn't ever see it. And then when I had these two people with melanoma uh, uh, that had a low-grade prostate cancer and a high-grade melanoma actually showed up in the same picture. In the one the, person? Mm -hmm. Yes, in two different people, strangely enough. Yeah. Um, both from uh, down south, and they were older men. They were in their 60s or 70s. And, um, well, the doctors weren't worried about the prostate cancer because they said they were going to die from the melanoma. Mm. So we picked up both in the same picture. And did that lead on any further to looking at, uh, say, prostate cancer? Because one of the biggest problems there, I guess, is the biopsies. Um, oh. When It's pretty horrendous for men sometimes going through 19 biopsies. So if this was a method that could be used for early diagnosis, obviously this is another, another fantastic well, uh, invention. Well, this um, low-grade one was published way back in the 2004, I think, or 2007 or something. And uh, later on, we did the mice 
with the um, prostate cancer and they're right back at the beginning in these pictures. Um, so those um, mice uh, showed that we could pick this up long before it can be seen by any other technique. Uh, the mice, we could pick it up in three week old mice. No other method could detect whether they've got it or not until 10 weeks. So this is much, much earlier. And for that reason, we went ahead with a big study then. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we found that um, some men, in fact, have... Uh, it has already invaded by the time they show up. In, uh, for show up for treatment even. Right. Which is certainly um, what we see quite a lot of. Mm. And it's perhaps one of the really devastating areas in cancer medicine where uh, we could certainly use a lot of improvement. Yes. Certainly. Wait a minute. Here's prostate cancer. This recent paper of mine oh, sorry, uh, shows normal skin. This is low grade. The inner ring is low grade. And this is BHP. That's benign hypotrophy. Yep. Uh, this one, you see that this is a narrowing for low grade, but it gets wider and wider and wider. I'm now trying to see if I can detect which, where exactly the Gleason scores come from that, the width of that ring. But out here, beyond that, there are two rings on the 17th and 18th order they tell if it's invaded and by which method. Mm -hmm. So this, I believe, is far too late. We should be seeing young men with all this perfect uh, skin then perhaps pick up the first stages and remove it then. So when you're looking at the skin, where is it taken from? How, is, how much do you need? What's the sort of the technique or the method that you would do? Can it be taken anywhere in the body? Yes. You, you can take the skin from anywhere and preferably nowhere near the prostate because that causes infections and the terrible infections. Mm -hmm. We take a three millimetre, I think it is, biopsy, two or three millimetres, and it can be taken with a keys punch, just stick a needle in and turn it round and you've got your sample uh, from anywhere. We take it from the stomach, which is a soft kind of tissue, or the buttocks, which is also soft mm -hmm. and doesn't cause any problem, or from the upper arm. And then with that, once you've got that tissue, then that process is, is similar to what you described before? Yes, we, we simply tie it into a cell from both ends. We must keep it frozen. We uh -huh. put it in saline and keep it frozen. It will last up to six months, ready to go for a test. But once you take it out, uh, you've got to keep it in the saline solution until you put it in the machine. So we've learned how to do that as well. Wonderful. Sounds like uh, much better than a PSA test as well. <laughs> oh, a PSA test is less than useless. <laughs> Thank you. We'll come back and we'll talk more about that in a moment on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Don't go away, folks. We'll be back shortly continuing this fascinating conversation with Professor Veronica James.
your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health and Wellness. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute, as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Goller Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollerinstitute.com or email institute at gracegoller.com. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Goller Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Goller Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze with Professor Veronica James and we're talking about some fascinating research in early diagnosis. Now, before we went to the break, Veronica, we were talking about prostate cancer. With the samples of skin that you looked at from the patients with prostate cancer, what was the accuracy of the results that you got? And what about false positives and false negatives in in this? And maybe you could explain what uh, false positives and false negatives are. Well, we we didn't uh, get any false negatives. That is, any person that had prostate cancer came out as positive. There weren't any that were wrong. There were, in the 377 samples that we've done on prostate cancer, there were three false positives. Mm -hmm. That means that we said these three men had prostate cancer when, in fact, their medicos or whatever had said they didn't. However, what we discovered is that some of those false positives are in fact positive later on. And it's a pity, in fact, that they weren't picked up at the time of our test, but rather too late because some of them had invaded later. Which is uh, perhaps 
too accurate compared with any of the normal results now. PSA test is less than 20% accurate. Even the new urine tests coming out of Cambridge, as they said, it was 80% accurate, but they were proud of that because it was twice as accurate as anything else that they had at the time. Ours is 100% accurate. Or if you consider the false negatives, it's 99 And you've got a fairly big cohort of prostate cancer patients in there too. Well, we've only got 377. That's enough. (laughs) Well, with breast cancer, I've done over 4,000. Wow. And I haven't had any. Thank you for adding that, because I meant to ask you that question Mm. before. Yes. You know, over 4,000 and no false negatives. But we did have some false positives. Mm -hmm. And as I told you about the lady who we diagnosed three years earlier, many of those have proved positive since. But even if we take those into account, it's over 99% accurate. Mm-hmm. So by diagnosing people this early, what your hope would be that people would be then proactive to, to take a, a stance at a much earlier stage? If, if I diagnose them as being positive, I would like them to have an MRI test mm-hmm. and locate this tumour and remove it. We can then do a subsequent test and see if they were cured. So the person doesn't have to spend the rest of their life worrying, especially we've done this with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. What about, uh, just going back to breast cancer for a minute, with BRCA gene, BRCA gene 1 and 2, have you had any experience with this? Yes, and I haven't as yet uh, done enough tests to publish it. Mm-hmm. But there is a definite change in the ring. That's really so far, mm-hmm. I haven't kind of had enough to say it always happens or this is for breast BRCA1 and this is BRCA2, but there is a definite change. And this was done with a set of samples uh, that I had from USA, and um, I wasn't allowed to publish them on the side because, well, their local physicist wasn't able to do it, right. so they didn't trust me. So there's a lot still in the pipeline for Professor Veronica James to, <laughs> to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on to uh, some of the other research that you've been doing, you were telling me that you've actually uh, taken this into looking at Alzheimer's as well and as yes. a prevention. So even though that's a little off the cancer track, I'd really like to explore that with you. Well, for Alzheimer's, we found... Uh, Well, they showed up, first of all, in some breast cancer samples. And these are skin or nails? Nail, hair. Hair. Hair and nails. Okay. Uh, Anything that shows up in hair also shows up in nails. Right. And um, what happened there was we've got these, uh, in the pictures of hair, we found this is the normal picture for hair around the centre in the equatorial direction. I'm looking at a very pretty image here, folks, um, with a sort of a central bullet point yes. and a very fancy shape around the edge with two oh, little dots in a space. That's just the holder. And then we've got here... Yeah, we've got the first dots. We've got two dots mm. either side. And they go out. But when we have a person with Alzheimer's, look what happens. Mm-hmm. We get these kind of... As if I always feel that I've been feeding the chickens. 
this spread of little dots coming yep, out. Yep, yep, that's very clear. And they only, I found these in a set of people who'd been sent for breast, for breast cancer. And I said, what would this woman have? And she said, oh, Alzheimer's. And so then I did a test from the uh, Alzheimer's Hospital in Perth, and I had them all right, a hundred people, some of whom had Alzheimer's and some who didn't. And they have all, all of them have they, this pattern? They have these extra dots, mm -hmm. whatever it is. I think it's beta amyloid. Ah, Because, right. strangely enough, I found them in pregnant women as well in their third trimester. And I found these in Russian samples. And I said to them, I don't know, these people here, they've got Alzheimer's. But, you know, I thought you said they were young women. And he said, oh, yes, they are. They're women in their third trimester. And at that stage, there's a build-up of beta amyloid for the structural development. Mm. And I'm wondering, does it go away at birth? When does it disappear? What? I have never had time to find that out yet. Fascinating. Yes. But they have uh, treatments now for Alzheimer's in Perth that are getting Alzheimer's patients back out onto the street. I wonder why doctors in other areas aren't using them. Mm. Perhaps we can talk a little bit more about that. So if anybody's listening today and they want to follow that through, I might be able to point them in the right direction yes. if they'd like to make an inquiry. Remember, um, the blog is grayschoolandmedia.com and you can email me, institute at grayschooler.com, always if you have any questions uh, or even questions you'd like me to ask someone who's been on the show, like uh, Professor James today. Any other areas of cancer that you found really interesting um, in your research? Well, the colon cancer one, where when I did that work way back in the early this century, um, most people, a lot of people who had colon cancer actually got a repeat two years later in the same spot. And more than 50% of those died because they didn't pick it up. They thought they were cured. That's it. Mm. And I discovered they gave me the length of colon from the tumour out to where they cut it off. And I got a definite change right up near the tumour. But down at the end, it wasn't clear yet. And I said to the doctors who supplied those samples, you didn't take enough. Look, it's still odd. And then they gave me a longer extension and it was clear at the other end mm. I wonder I, I published that in a paper hoping that the doctors would see it and realise why the people were getting it again because they could move right up to near the tumour mm -hmm. it's not going to help and they're kind of making a minimal distance along and then people are getting it again. And this time, minimally fatal. Mm. Ovarian cancer, um, any work on that? Oh, yes, I have tried to see it, but I haven't seen it. But I understand some people in Thailand are now saying that there is a change for that as well. But they're the first people to say that my was right in the beginning, <laughs> so I don't really want to say anything against them. 
the body of work that you've talked about with me off air and on air today is really fascinating. How do you feel about like where you've come to at this point? Um, because you, you've had a tremendous body of work and some great publications, but mm. not paid attention to. No, the doctors don't really want to know. I feel like they, they're going to lose money if they bring my thing in, and they just don't want to have anything to do with it. They seem to have forgotten their first-year physics, where they would have learnt about diffraction. Mm-hmm. And in an ideal world, um, if you could set up somewhere tomorrow and say, yes, I'd like to continue this research, what would you need to do that? I'd need an instrument to do it on. Um, when I first, when my breast cancer paper was published on here, a man from the Department of Defence in the USA said, if this proves to be correct, I felt like saying, of course it's correct, I can't falsify my result. Anyhow, he said, we will build a synchrotron for your purpose and samples can come from everywhere to be done if only all those men hadn't thrown spanners into the works by saying they couldn't do it. We would have had that by now. Uh-huh. But you're still keen, aren't you, to pursue Oh, this. yes, I'm very keen. I really want to see this before I die. I believe I've been put here to do it, and I, somehow I'll get it done. Can I ask you your age on air? Yes, I'm almost 80. And looking fantastic, I might add. <laughs> and a very sharp brain. Um, we're going to take a break now, navigating the cancer maze. We'll come back for a few minutes afterwards and round off. Mm. So don't go away. And uh, I want to thank you uh, already for being here today. It's been fantastic. We'll be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Scholar Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracescholarinstitute.com or email institute at gracescholar.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Guller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Back on Navigating the Cancer Maze with Professor Veronica James. It's been a fascinating time today. Um, Veronica, is there anything you'd like to say or discuss about your work, your background that we haven't talked about yet? Well, perhaps some of the extracurricular activities that I did uh, when I discovered things astray in the education of the students. Firstly, the hearing-impaired students weren't allowed to do science because there are hazards in the laboratory. So I started what I call the phones for the deaf and brought them all in to do the most difficult experiments and they didn't cause any havoc in the laboratory. So now I went in and fought for various people and got them positions in science in their schools. One particular boy was exceptionally bright He was averaging, I think they said, 75, and they thought that was very good for a deaf student. I said if he could hear the lessons or partake in the lessons, he'd be getting 97, not 79 or whatever. He did get 97 in the end, and he topped um, mechanical electrical combination uh, uh, at the University of Sydney. He's high up in IBM at the moment. But he, he was, in the end, the first one to have a, a lady at the back of the schoolroom typing what was being said, and he was reading it on a computer up at his desk. This was subsequently introduced into school so that whether a number of deaf students were someone typed and it appeared on a board at the front, so they could be partake in discussion classes. Otherwise... They only pick up such a little bit Mm. from lip reading. And also, this was combined with higher level physics and maths classes, which I ran at various places around Sydney. And that helped the students from far out west of Sydney, who never, no one from this school has ever been to the university, they told me. Well, many of them got scholarships and have done extremely well. Thank you. I think that gives our listeners quite a, um, a bird's eye view of, of who you are. And quite an exceptional lady who's made quite an exceptional contribution, um, not only to science, but to children and, and teenagers who are growing up in this science environment. And that's really something. I think you're a national treasure, actually. <laughs> Certainly for Australia. Uh, now, I know you received the OAM for your work with, um, with ch- um, hearing impaired children. 
Um, you were named Woman of the Year in 1999 by the American Biological Institute and received the International Scientist of the Year 2004 medal from IBC Cambridge. And I believe you've just been offered an honorary doctorate um, in science from Cambridge. How's that oh, feel? <laughs> it feels very good if I can afford it. That's <laughs> right. a major problem to spend that much money on myself. Quite deserving of it, however. Um, as we're rounding off today, I'd like to ask you what other things you do in life that you find great pleasure in? What gives you your balance in your work life? Obviously, science is one end. What else? I garden. Mm -hmm. as, you can, as you can see from this, vines almost coming into meters. <laughs> I sew and knit and crochet, tat. I don't keep myself uh, much spare time. You're a very active lady. Do you have anything to do with the hearing impaired still? No, not since I came to Queensland. I ran camps up here for three years and the students were all very keen. But unfortunately I didn't have enough help to do it. In Sydney it's still going. Fantastic. Mm. Yep. Well, thank you for your time today. I think your fibre diffraction diagnosis is really, really interesting. And I hope that somebody listening to this show today who is doing research um, or perhaps someone who'd like to sponsor um, your work and further it, um, I really hope there's somebody out there who's going to pay attention to this. And uh, I think your body of work is fantastic. And as I said, I think you're an Australian national treasure. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> Okay, we'll be back next week on Navigating the Cancer Maze with uh, yet another interesting interview. Next week will be um, Brendan Coventry. He is a researcher um, with Adelaide University and also at uh, the Royal Adelaide Hospital. And you might remember that name because he's a co-researcher with Martin Ashdown. I'm sure you've enjoyed this interview with a very, a very wonderful Australian lady, Professor Veronica James, today. I hope that by bringing attention to techniques such as those that Veronica has researched over the years will allow you, the listener, uh, to navigate in the cancer maze to just be aware that out there there's perhaps thousands if not millions of scientists around the world who are all working towards finding either a cure for cancer, improving treatments for cancer or in Veronica's case, looking at early diagnosis for cancer, which is certainly, in my view, um, the way to go. So I hope that today's interview has ignited some thoughts in you. If you know anyone who might be interested in investing um, some money in Veronica's techniques and in her training of other people. She's almost 80. She's very keen to continue with her research. And uh, I think it would be fantastic if you contacted me and then I can put you through to Veronica. As a part of the uh, innovation of navigating the cancer maze, of course, next week we have uh, Mr. Brendan Coventry. He's an associate professor at the Department of Surgery, University of Adelaide. He's also breast endocrine and surgical oncologist at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. He's a co-researcher with Martin Ashdown, and that uh, name might be familiar to you because they've researched together on the immune cycle and immune synchronization of treatments. He's got a broad base of research interests, anti-tumor immune response in human malignancies, tumor immunology, 
um, cancer vaccine treatments, which will be very interesting to speak with him about, uh, given some of his research papers, tumour growth regulation, surgical complications, risk management, and uh, lymph node biopsy and lymphatic tracing in breast cancer and melanoma. He's also interested in novel prognostic markers of cancers. So this uh, is shaping up to be also a very interesting and very useful, very practical interview for anybody who's wanting to navigate the cancer maze more effectively and successfully. Now, always remember, you can go to my blog, grayschoolermedia.com, and there you'll find all the resources, information and extensions about the histories and about the research and the work of people that you hear on Navigating the Cancer Maze each week. I look forward to uh, you joining me next week. Have a wonderful weekend and uh, we'll be back with uh, Brendan Coventry talking about these very interesting cancer topics. Bye for now. Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.